If you've had the chance this morning to look at your message notes, let me just clear something up. I'm not Lori McDaniel. And if you saw that and you were excited about hearing Lori McDaniel, that actually leads right into the message this morning with a life principle that uh, life's not fair. You know, so <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, and, you know, we don't have to live very long to know that life's not fair. I mean, you see pictures like this and, you know, I, I look, I talk to my physical therapist and I go, you know, life's not fair or I could do that too, right? Or maybe there's, there's, it's like this. It says, my brother put dog food in my cocoa puffs. I ate them all just thinking they were stale, you know? And then there's this one, you know, it says, when someone eats whatever they want and doesn't gain a pound compared to when I eat a cookie and get an extra chin, life's not fair. So we can agree, I think, I hope. I think you can agree that life's just not fair, isn't it? And, And like most people, I learned this pretty early and it doesn't take a lot of life experience. My poignant my most poignant reminder that life isn't fair came at about age 14. And before I tell you that story, let me just say that, give you a little background, that I grew up um, as a missionary kid. I grew up overseas and uh, didn't have a lot of interaction with uh, Americans for most of my growing up years. Um, I was schooled in, in a either one person, I was the person, or maybe two people in my classroom. And so I just didn't really know how all things worked, right? I mean, I, and then in ninth grade, I moved. I had to go to a boarding school in a different country. It was a dorm and had this huge school. And so to say that I didn't understand how I wasn't very socially aware and didn't have a lot of social experience was, in fact, the understatement probably this century. And you're probably saying now, that explains a lot. I thought... He was dropped on his head when he was small, but it turns out he was just a missionary's kid. I understand that now. But so imagine growing up in that environment, and then I go to high school in this faraway country, big city, and I'm in a classroom in in freshman English. And this was the kind of classrooms where you moved around. You know, I'd never moved around. I just sat there, and the teacher, we moved around. So it's all new to me. And... Very first day, I'm sitting there. She, the teacher passes out um, manila envelopes. And, you know, somewhere in there, I kind of lost, I spaced out. And I wasn't paying attention. I come to, and I realize that everybody is writing on their manila envelopes. And I'm not even sure what I've got a manila envelope for. And then I look up at the board, and I see that she's written, Mrs. Smith, first hour English. I go, Oh, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be writing. So I wrote on my on the little tab on my folder, Mrs. Smith, first hour English. And then they were still writing. So I looked up and it said, Mary Brown. I go, oh, well, okay. So I wrote down Mary Brown. Now, remember, I'd only been the, I was the only one in my class for all these years. I didn't know you wrote your name on, on folders like that. So <laughs> then she, she gathers them up and she collects them all. And we start some homework or something. And she says, all right, who's the smart aleck that wrote Mary Brown? And I'm like, that would be me. And you've got to add on to that the fact that I was living in a dorm with high school students. So what do you think I was called multiple times per week for the next two years, right? Life's not fair, right? Sometimes I want to send a letter to life. I want to send a note and I want to say, dear life, I have a complete grasp on the fact that you're not fair. So please stop teaching me that lesson, right? 
Now, that was funny, but I don't mean to make light of the fact that there are some very real struggles, some very real and awful things that happen in life. And you don't have to live for very long before you discover that life is difficult. And at times, life is even seemingly impossible. Now, sometimes these are things that... uh, of your, of your own volition, things that you've done. Maybe we've done it to ourselves. Maybe I'm suffering from suffocating credit card debt. Or maybe I've just made some bad life decisions. So sometimes I do it to myself. Sometimes somebody else might do it to me. You know, your spouse says, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. Very real, very hurtful, very difficult. Sometimes there's, there's situations that don't fit into either one of these categories. They just, they just kind of happen, right? And I know in a room this size, there are some people here today that are facing what seems to be impossible, what seems to be hopeless even. And you're looking at your circumstances and you're saying, I don't see a way out. In fact, I I don't even know if I'm going to be able to survive this season. And when life looks like that, it's very tempting and very easy and very natural to say, where is God? Where is God in this? I mean, isn't that what God's for? Isn't that why we have God to avoid things like this happening? Or at least to make them more tolerable or help me out when things go wrong? Now, if you're not a Jesus follower this morning and you're here, you may, you may say, I don't even know if there is a God. And furthermore, I don't know if there is a God, whether he or she even cares. Either way, I don't want to have anything to do with a God that would allow bad things to happen. And, and, and I understand that. I understand. Sometimes I've got more questions than I've got answers myself. But I hope you leave here today with the realization that the, the existence of God and the providence of God are not determined by our circumstances. In fact, the, the existence of God and the character of God are revealed by our circumstances. There's a story in the Bible that's about 2,900 years old that talks about this, that illustrates this. It's in 1 Kings chapter 17. And you can be turning there either in your, in your uh, Bible or on your phone. But while you're doing that, let me give you a little bit of background. The, the people of Israel, the uh, They wanted to have a king. And God said, that's not a very good idea. You really don't want a king. In fact, the prophet Samuel said, you really don't want a king. This is a really terrible idea. They insisted on having a king. And so God gave them a king. And his name was Saul. And Saul was the very first king of the nation of Israel. And then there were some kings that came after him that you may be familiar with. David came after him and then Solomon. And that kind of brings us to our story in about 865 B.C., is where our story starts. And Solomon has died. And the once peaceful nation that was, was torn apart by, by warfare, both internal and external warfare. 
And Israel split into two, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom was relatively peaceful. It was stable for about 75 years there. The northern kingdom, not so much. In fact, three of their first six kings were murdered. And then we come to the seventh king, which is the one in our story today. His name is Ahab. The seventh king was Ahab. And he and his wife Jezebel, you may have heard of her, they proved to be the most ungodly power couple that Israel had ever had. And that is a mouthful. Okay, that's quite a statement to say that idol worship at that time, the, the, the worship of the prophet Baal had reached its zenith, had reached its peak. In fact, the chapter right before the one we're going to read says Ahab did more evil, did evil more than all who were before him. He did more to provoke the God, the Lord, the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. <laughs> How would you like that on your tombstone? That's quite the epitaph. And it's in this environment, it's in this setting that a guy named Elijah makes his appearance. Now, he was, he was a prophet that was supposed to bring a word from God to Ahab. And we don't know anything about Elijah up until that point. I mean, there's no introduction. There's no description of what his qualities are. We don't even know what his knowledge, his experience is. And suddenly he shows up on the pages of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 17. And it says in verse 1, it says, Elijah says to King Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, before whom I stand, lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He says, King Ahab, it ain't going to rain for a long time until I say so. Now, in an agricultural nation, which Israel was at that time, drought is a really big deal. Drought is catastrophic. They only had two rainy seasons a year, and they needed those, that, that rain for crops. So Elijah's prophecy to Ahab about the fact that it wouldn't rain was a big deal. And it was a big deal on a couple of levels. One is, of course, that it wouldn't rain. There would be no rain. That was the physical part of that prophecy. But also there was the prophecy. It, it applied because it was a spiritual challenge to the god Baal. Because, see, god, Baal was the god of storms, the god of rain. And so what, what the god of Israel was saying is, I'm bigger than your god. Let me just show you how big it was. So this was a big deal. Now, Elijah did exactly what he was supposed to do, right? He was told to do this, and so this is what he did, right? What would you expect to happen to someone that did exactly what God had told them to do? I mean, wouldn't you expect that there would be blessings? Maybe the next part of this story is about how Elijah lives a really long life. Maybe there's stories about how, how God protected him and all these great things happened to Elijah. No. Elijah warns King Ahab, and then God puts him in the witness protection program. Look at this. In verse 3, it says, Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You can drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Ravens. So Elijah goes, and he, he, goes to, he goes exactly where God tells him to again and lives by the brook Cherith. And, you know, as things work out, it wasn't so bad. I mean, the, the, these ravens brought meat and bread to him in the morning. They brought meat and bread to him in the evening. And this went on for months, if not years. And I imagine that Elijah got kind of used to it. I mean, he probably got tired of meat and bread all the time and probably got tired of seeing the ravens all the time. But 
I mean, all in all, things could be worse, right? And then the brook dries up because, I mean, you know, it was a drought, right? So the brook dries up. Elijah had to run for cover because he did exactly what God told him to do. The brook dries up. He had to be asking, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Here's what I want us to learn this morning. God is found in my need. God is found in my need. See, Elijah was in a difficult spot, right? When he looked at his circumstances, it would have been easy to get discouraged. But God didn't send Elijah money. God didn't send Elijah clothes. God didn't even, as far as we know, send Elijah any companionship. He could have sent angels to feed Elijah, couldn't he? Yet all Elijah gets is food from nasty old ravens. And from a human perspective, ravens are not exactly the most appealing creatures to provide lunch. Ravens are vulture, are kind of like vultures. They are scavengers. They feed on roadkill, if you will. And I don't know what roadkill looked like in 800 BC, but they feed on roadkill. And I don't know what exactly they were bringing him, but that's just nasty to even think about, right? And ravens, as a result of that, ravens were really unclean animals. In fact, the Israelites were not even allowed to eat ravens. They weren't allowed to even sacrifice ravens. They couldn't even kill the ravens, for crying out loud. They couldn't even sacrifice them. And ravens are very selfish. I mean, even if we wanted to share a meal with a raven, they won't do it. They won't even share their meals with their young. Okay, so these are just nasty animals. Um, I think you got the idea. But here's the thing. How many needs did did Elijah have? He really only had two, didn't he? Food and water. And that's exactly what God provided. For two years, God provided Elijah food and water. And may may I remind you, may I remind you, in a drought, he provided food and water. It just didn't look like Elijah had expected it to look. So have you ever thought you were doing the right thing? You were doing exactly what you were supposed to be doing, but maybe God is directing you and life's just not working out. Have you ever been there? Maybe you move your family for a job and your kids hate the school. Maybe you hate your neighbors. Your spouse quits to stay home with the children and suddenly you have unexpected bills Expenses, and that creates a lot of tension, a lot of anxiety. Maybe you decide, and I've seen this happen, to go on a global adventure, and you know the money's going to be tight, but suddenly you make that decision, you commit to go, and there's unexpected expenses. Whether it's a car wreck, or I've got to replace some appliances, or whatever it is, I just wasn't expecting this. What do you do? Does it cause you to doubt God? Does it cause you to ask, where is God? God is found in our need. See, he knows exactly what you need, and he's more than able to provide it. It just may not look quite like you think it's going to look. 
Can you look around your life and see God's provision? It just may be different than you expect. Or maybe because you're expecting God, you're expecting a, a bolt of lightning or a thunderous voice, and you miss God. And in fact, God is working all around you all the time. You will find God at your point of need. My experience is that God is found when I need him. Sometimes when I'm not even aware of him or sometimes when I'm unaware. I told you I grew up a missionary kid, actually was in Indonesia. And we moved to Indonesia when I was in second grade. So I think that's seven years old, something like that. And I admit that I don't remember this story happening in real, all this story happening in real time. But uh, we'd been there probably about a year and there was an attempted overthrow of the government uh, by the communists. And the communist party was accepted as part of the Indonesian political system. It was okay until they tried to overthrow the president and then it wasn't okay. But it was an accepted deal. But you could see, we could see tensions rising and there were demonstrations and this sort of stuff. We actually had a hospital that we'd built in Kadiri that was a beacon for this part of Indonesia. The community loved it. Our doctors and nurses were fabulous, had a great relationship with, um, with the locals. One day, somebody with the Indonesian Communist Party hung a banner uh, for their party across our hospital, publicizing or, or the, the, the Indonesian Communist Party. And one of our doctors went down and tore down half the sign because he said, we're not a political institution. We don't want to be part of that. And as often happens in third world countries, there was a near riot. People came and they were, they were yelling and this, that, and the other. And, and finally, one of the nurses went out and calmed the, calmed the masses, if you will, calmed them down. But one, uh, but they, one thing they said is, fine, we'll calm down. But that doctor has got to go. And they gave him 24 hours to get out of the country. And he did. So that's the story that I knew until about two months ago. I went to a uh, reunion of missionaries from Indonesia and missionary kids from Indonesia. And there was one there that's a peer of mine that uh, uh, works for the CIA. And he shared with us that he, he shared with us some documentation that the CIA has declassified that was written back when they were investigating this whole thing, not the hospital thing, but the whole uh, revolution overthrow of the government. And he read the CIA report, and the CIA report talks about the attempted overthrow of the government. And then, surprisingly, in this, in this document, it says, it talks about the, our hospital in Kadiri. And it talks about this incident where there was this banner hung over our hospital, and the guy, doctor, tore it down, and then there was the mob came, and then... And it talks about that. And it has actual interviews of people that they interviewed, not our doctors and nurses, but the people that were in the mob, if you will, at that time. And in the CIA report, it says that they talked to the, the, head, the, the head honchos of that and, they, and found out that those guys were going to come back that night. They had jerry cans and, and barrels of kerosene and gasoline, and they were going to burn the whole thing down. And the CIA asked the guy, said, well, 
why didn't you do it? And they said, well, when we got there in the middle of the night, we couldn't do it because there were all these armed soldiers all around the building. Are you kidding me? We, we couldn't do it. Can I tell you, there were no armed soldiers. That was the hand of God. Even when we were unaware, that was the hand of God. Later, they found the list of everybody that was to be exterminated had the coup succeeded. My name was on that list. My family's name and the friends and everything were on that list. The guy that we thought was our friend and, and the, the neighborhood watch kind of guy turned out to be the head communist in the area. And, of course, the coup failed and, and we survived. But was God there during that time? Yeah. God was there. It just didn't look quite like we expected. And maybe you're thinking, you know, this season in my life, this isn't what I planned for. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. But, you know, maybe it could be worse. And then without warning, your brook dries up. Are you there? You hear me? See, some of you are in the midst of a great storm. And you find yourself wondering where God is. You got bills that you can't pay. Maybe you got a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe you have children that are suffering from addiction. Or they're in prison. Or they're on their way to prison. And your world is turning upside down. Perhaps irreparably. Your situation is overwhelming. And you've reached the point of wondering, where is God? When we go back to our story of Elijah, could God have kept Elijah's brook flowing? Well, sure. He could have done that. I mean, there's a story earlier in the Bible about God making water come out of a rock. So I'm pretty sure that he could have kept a a, a brook flowing. But why didn't he? I don't know. I don't know. But, and some of you need to hear this. In fact, this, this, this may be the reason that you're here today. Elijah hadn't done anything wrong. The brook didn't dry up because Elijah was living outside of God's will. The brook didn't dry up because God was forsaking Elijah or that he was done with Elijah. See, when we experience difficulties, we, we tend to blame God. We tend to question God. We even tend to question whether there is a God. And yet Elijah was doing exactly what God told him to do. And the brook ran dry anyway. So why? See, I believe that by allowing the brook to dry up, God was asking Elijah, is your faith in the brook or is your faith in me? Is your faith in the water or food, and food that I provide, or is your faith in me? Is your faith and security in God, or is your faith and security in the blessings that God has given you? See, it's easy to fall into the trap of trusting the blessings that God's given us. But what are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your security in? Where's your, is your confidence in your job? Is your confidence in your bank account? 
in your spouse, in your family. We know we're just one unexpected phone call away from our world turning upside down, aren't we? Your job was never meant to be your identity. Your bank account was never meant to be your security. Your family, as precious as that is, cannot be your everything. God is found in your need. Here's a life principle for you. Until Jesus is all you have, you will not realize that he's all you need. Until Jesus is all you have, you will not realize he's all you need. And you might say, that's easy for you to say. You've never been given a pink slip. Oh, yes, I have. (laughs) And not that long ago either, my dad. How do I know that God meets us at the point of our need? How do I know that? Because when we were the most desperate... God showed up. We are destined for an eternity separated from God because of our disobedience. And yet God had a plan from from before there was time. God had a plan. And you can read through Scripture in in, in the third chapter of Genesis. He said, I am going to send a deliverer for my people. That was his plan. And over hundreds and thousands of years later, many prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah that had been promised. The one who lived a perfect, sinless life and was born so that he could die a substitutionary death for my sin and your sin, for all sin, for all man, for all time. That's God's plan. When we were the most desperate, When we couldn't do anything for ourselves, God showed up. That's how I know we can find him in our need. God can also be found in our obedience. After the brook incident, God gave Elijah another assignment. In chapter, sorry, in chapter 17, verse 8, God told Elijah, arise and go to Zarephath and live there. I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, Zarephath wasn't just any old place. It was 100 miles away in an era when people, most travel was done by foot, right? So it was 100 100 miles away. On top of that, the king of Zarephath was Jezebel's, Jezebel's father. So, all right, so we have Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah, this is them by saying it isn't going to rain anymore. Then he goes and runs off. And then he's told to go. After that, he's told to go to Zarephath where Jezebel's father is the king. Doesn't look like a really good plan, does it? On top of that, this was the very heart of Baal worship. And I imagine that Elijah had to be wondering, what is going on? But... Elijah went to Zarephath anyway. Even though he didn't understand, it didn't make sense to him, he went to Zarephath anyway. And not just the location was interesting. God said, I'm going to send you to a widow. And I'm sure Elijah thought, you have got to be kidding me. Now I'm reduced to begging from a widow. And at that day and time, the widow was the lowest rung of society. 
The only way they survived was through the graciousness and the generosity of their friends and, the, and their family. And he gets to Zarephath, and not only is she a widow, she's down to her last meal. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, so he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? And so she goes and does it. He goes, ah, as you're going to get it, and bring me a piece of bread too. And she said, verse 12, I don't have any bread. I've only got a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Son. So God told Elijah to go to this widow who was down to the last of her food. And remember, it's still a drought. The last of her food. And, and Elijah had to be going, you have got to be kidding me. But maybe you're like that widow. All you can see right now is this, your current condition. You can't imagine how I can get any better or any different. Many times we're in a, we're in a, in a particularly difficult season and we think, is this really God's plan for my life? Because You know, I could have done a lot better than this. I could have figured out a better plan than this. And I don't know what Elijah thought during this whole time. But here's what I what I believe happened. He his previous experience taught him that he could trust God. His previous experience at the brook with the ravens taught him that he could trust God in this time that even seemed maybe even worse than that. And so he says in verse 13 and 14, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Sure enough, the widow complied And all three of them were fed for a long time. In fact, verse 15 says she went away and did exactly as Elijah told her. And so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. God is found in obedience. See, it's easy to have 20-20 vision looking back and think that everything was predetermined. Because I know how the outcome, I know the outcome of the story. But do you know that this widow didn't know her jar would be refilled when she baked the bread for Elijah? She didn't know that. She didn't know it would provide for her and her son when she made the bread for Elijah. It was only after she took him the bread and went to fix her last meal that she saw the miracle. Because they were obedient, they survived the famine with everything they needed. But when did she see the miracle? After she was obedient. They never lacked for food or water the whole time until it started raining again. Listen. The truth is that there may be something in this season of your life that God wants to use to prepare you for the next season. There's a work that God wants to do in you before he can do a work through you. 
There's a work that God needs to do in you before he can do a work through you. If you're faithful where you are, God will be faithful to get you where you need to be. What if Elijah had gone to a different brook, a different town, a different widow? I don't know. But I do know that Elijah found God when he was obedient to what he believed God was telling him to do. Do you trust God that much? Do you trust God when life seems hopeless? If you want to know God, there is a way to be obedient. And to do that, you have to choose to take your next step toward God. That next step is not the same for everybody in this room. But God is calling you and drawing you to what your next step of obedience toward him is. Because God is going to be found. If you want to find God, God is going to be found in your obedience. See, here's the thing. Obedience is active, not passive. Here's what I mean by that. Let me give you a story. There was a time, probably about 15, 20 years ago, when I went on a mission trip down in northern Mexico in the Sonora Desert. And I had, a, I had a group of 29, I think it was, people. We had three different vehicles. And in that part of Mexico, um, there were no street lights. And this particular night, the roads are really windy, curvy, so they go up and down. And, and there's, that, that particular night, there wasn't even a very big moon. And we were driving back from one place to the next place. And one of the guys that I had on my team was a wannabe NASCAR driver, I think. And he, he, he had a reputation for driving really fast. Well, he was in the lead car because I didn't want him trying to pass me on those roads. So I said, I'll go in the second car. And the whole time, I, I kept up pretty close with him, the whole time all the way back to, this, to the town we were going to. And when we got out, he said, man, you must have been proving that you could drive. You must have been trying to prove that you could drive as fast as I can. I said, no, that wasn't it at all. I wasn't trying to keep up with you just to prove how fast I could drive. I realized really quickly that if I stayed close to you, I would know when the road turned. I would know when it went down. I would know when it went up. And I really didn't have to pay attention to the guardrails on the side of the road if I was close enough to you to follow because then I would know where things are going. Let me ask you something. Shouldn't we be like that with Jesus? He said, come follow me. Take your next step. And if I follow God closely enough, he'll watch the road. I don't have to watch the road. I just have to watch him. Hmm. See, Elijah kept finding himself in circumstances that challenged his faith. And then things continued to get worse. At some point, you think it's going to bottom out. If you read the rest of the story, you'll realize that you'll find that the widow's son dies. And Elijah brings him back to life. God brings him back to life through Elijah. The question is why? Why did all these things happen in Elijah's life? Why did God send him to the brook? See, I think it's because Elijah found God in his need. Why did God send him to the widow? I think it's because Elijah found God in his obedience. When you realize that God will supply all that you need and you're obedient to him, you'll discover that God is found in the future as well. 
See, I believe that all these things happened because God was preparing Elijah for what was next. And during this time of stretching, of uncomfortableness, God was preparing Elijah, and he, Elijah couldn't know what God, that God was preparing something special and spectacular for him. This season of Elijah's life prepared him for the next season. And you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm not going to read it to you or for you. You've got to read it. This thing is epic because Elijah comes back and challenges Ahab and Jezebel and their 450 prophets of Baal to a firefight. And here's Elijah outnumbered 450 to 1. It'll make a great movie when they decide to do it. Man, you gotta, you gotta read, you ought to read your Bible more. Um, <clears throat> now, I don't believe that Elijah emerged from this season in the brook and the widow and everything else. I don't believe that he emerged from that without wounds. But I'll bet he didn't reg- regret those scars because they were reminders of how God had worked in his life, what God had brought him through. And you have some scars. And I have some scars. But they're reminders of what God's done in my life for me. See, there was a big showdown coming. And this season with the, with the brook and the widow and the child dying and all that just set the stage and build Elijah's faith and his confidence in God and his trust in God. And he knew he could believe in God And when the time came to call down fire from heaven, brother, it came down. When life has you confused and dismayed and feeling hopeless, know that you can find God at the point of your need. You can find God in your obedience and you can find God in your future. Let me tell you a story that I just heard about um, after the first hour. Kara, one of our young ladies here, her father passed away last year. And she's been praying since then that, um, that God would use that experience in her life to help somebody else. And that she might be able to just help somebody else that's walking through the same thing. Two weeks ago, Somebody came to their communitas group whose dad had just passed away. This morning, this morning, Kara got to meet with that young lady, shared experiences, and yes, their experiences were different. But Kara got to speak life into that person that she wouldn't have been able to do had the other season not happened. And can I tell you, today is her dad's birthday. What I want you to know is that this season that you're going through, this season that God has you in, it may be difficult, but you can find God where you need him. You can find him in obedience. And he's preparing for you for the future. God is calling you to himself. He's calling you to your next step 
with him. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe your next step is, listen, I got questions. I don't even know what you're asking me when you... I don't even know all this stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. This Jesus stuff is Greek to me. Send me an email. Randy at gracepointchurch.net and let's, let's chat. Maybe your next step is baptism. You say, I wanna, I'm going to express to the world that I've given my life to Jesus and let them hear part of my story. Or maybe your next step is to reach out to a neighbor. Listen, choose to follow Jesus today and every day, and you will find God in your present and in your future, a God that loves you and cares for you and wants the best for you. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible thing it is to come into your presence. What an incredible thing it is to know that when things are seemingly at their worst, that you care. That you're working in us and you're working around us and you want to work through us. Lord, I pray today for those in this room that are especially feeling defeated, exhausted, hopeless, not sure what's next, not sure where you're leading and what you want them to do, Father. I pray for strength and courage. But most of all, I pray that they will lean into you and realize that you are all they need.